The Being an Engineer podcast is a repository for industry knowledge and a tool through which engineers learn about and connect with relevant companies, technologies, people, resources, and opportunities. Enjoy the show. Just keep working the problem. And so what I found is when you have a dedicated, high-performing team with, I'll say, the right people on the bus, you know, and the right seats in the bus, you can bring home very challenging problems. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is Greg Trees. Uh, Greg has a degree in mechanical engineering and has spent nearly 30 years as a mechanical design engineer, developing products from railroad instrumentation to drug delivery devices to diagnostic equipment. Greg also has specific expertise in the world of FEA, or finite element analysis, which we'll definitely dive into during this interview. Greg, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Aaron. Glad to be here. So what made you decide to become an engineer? That's a great question. I've been asked it many times over my career. So back when I was, I'll say, my earliest Christmases that I can recall, maybe six years old or so, I remember my dad was fairly handy and he used to give me tools for Christmas. I remember getting you know, a hammer, saw, a drill, a jigsaw, and those kind of things. So pretty young in my life, I started, I'll say, uh, taking things apart, you know, fixing my bicycle or if my friend's bicycles needs some help getting fixed to a flat tire and helping with those kind of things or a loose pedal. Uh, so that was just kind of the start. Um, then over time, as progresses, you know, you get into school and mathematics, you start you know, learning, liking math, Christianity, start hearing people saying, Hey, you know, you should be an engineer. You're really good at math and science. So and on top of that, my grandfather, who was one of my role models, I looked up to his background was West Point and electrical engineering. So I had a lot of respect for him and I knew he was an engineer. And of course I didn't really have that electrical, I'll say uh flair for things, but mechanical sounded to me. So when I noticed there was the discipline of mechanical engineering, it just kind of sounded like a good fit. Although I had no real idea what a mechanical engineer does for a living other than, you know, they're using the design of cars and those kind of things. So that kind of really kind of was my progression towards moving that direction for as a college major. Uh, that's so cool that your dad gave you tools for Christmas. And that makes me think that I should be giving tools to my kids. <laughs> it's coming up here pretty soon. And, and one in particular, I think, would love his own set of tools. What a wonderful idea. Do you think that your your father gifted these tools to you because that was kind of the direction um, uh, he he wanted to steer you? Or was it more you had already kind of shown like this mechanical aptitude and he thought, oh, tools, that'd be a perfect way to help him along. Yeah, I'm not sure if it was really intentional or he just wanted to see his son use these things. You know, we haven't really talked about that. I thought it'd be good for me to follow up and ask him, say, hey, Dad, why, why did you give me those tools <laughs> since I was a young boy? You know? Free labor, right? Exactly. <laughs> as soon as you get trained. <laughs> All right. Well, um, let, let's talk about FEA a little bit. It, it's not something that we have spent much time talking about here on the podcast. And maybe um, share really briefly, what is FEA? What what does that acronym mean? You know, finite and element analysis. What does that even mean? And then a brief summary of, of how it's used, generally speaking, in uh, a product development environment. Sure. So FEA stands for finite element analysis. 
And basically that's where you take a, an object and you break it up into small bits or chunks called elements. And from there, you can assign a material properties to it, as in material properties of stainless steel or plastic or rubber. And you can put forces on it and loads. So you can bend it, you could twist it. Uh, you could then have even more complex analyses where you have a full assembly, such as even an automobile. Automobiles are virtually crash tested in a computer model. So the idea of finite element analysis is basically building a computer model to simulate your object with its intended requirements and to try and determine its performance, whether it meet those components on a computer versus building an empirical solid, you know, physical thing. I did not know that entire automobiles were tested in FEA. That's really uh, impressive in part because I've done a little bit of FEA. I'm nowhere near an expert at all, but I've done a little bit. And whenever I run an FEA, I always try and strip out as many parts as I can because I, you know, I'm running it on a computer, not, not a supercomputer or, uh, you know, a cloud bank or something like that. And it's really processor intensive. What, what does that system look like that, that runs an entire automobile? Is this like, you know, Amazon cloud services or something? Right. We actually have access where I work to Amazon cloud services. And we oh, also have our own high performance compute cluster, which is actually faster than the cloud, but the cloud has also more, I'll say expandable hardware so that you can need to solve a larger analysis, which is maybe more than what you have available. Let's say, I think our current high performance cluster we have at work is made of 256 cores. Uh, so to speak, you know, and of course one CPU could have you know, four or eight cores to how many it's on there. Uh, so this allows you to scale up and solve large problems. And, you know, it's amazing that automobiles, like uh, you said, are with also crash dummies in there virtually and airbags deploying are, are solved there. Now I'm not in the automotive business. I'm in the, the medical device business. So we're simulating devices and our materials to failure. Um, we'll be doing, I'll say electro, you know, electro structural thermal coupled analyses. There's other types of analyses where you're structuring or coupling fluids and structures together. And so it's really amazing just the, the fidelity of these models and the physics you can couple together to have a real-life simulation. Uh, yeah, and the hardware we have today available to us, I'll say, in this age is just, is just amazing, you know, what we can simulate just because the physical hardware exists in the software. That's incredible. I, I had a boss, um, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago who... Uh, and, and I'm sure FEA has come a long way since then. And, and it's also entirely possible that he was just ignorant to what FEA could do at that point. But I remember him saying when, when someone brought up, Oh, let's do some analysis on this. Let's throw it in FEA and, and see what we get. He would say, well, we're just going to have to test it in, you know, the, the, the real world anyway. So let's forget about the FEA and just go straight to real world testing. What, uh, what response or, or feedback might you give to someone with that mindset? Well, real world testing is, of course, always what I'll say somewhat of the ultimate. But one of the things we try and encourage also engineers to do in their development of a design is to develop a good mathematical model. And it could be something you develop equation in Excel or MathCAD or some other, you know, numerical analysis tool, or I'll say an FEA program analysis. And then you have your empirical tests. And what you want to do is you want to compare your empirical results, let's say from a physically built test, to your analysis. If this is something important that you're, I'll say, not just a cantilever beam equation, like how far is this going to deflect, so to speak, but if it's like a really important requirement, you have both your empirical results and your analysis model. 
And if the analysis and the model agree to, I'll say, a reasonable margin of error, what that tells you is you've minimized the risk of not understanding your design. Now, inevitably, you also you can have disagreement. You can have an analysis which is say, oh man, the brake force should be a hundred pounds, but in real life it was only fifty pounds. Well, that's a that's a pretty large percentage difference. And so what, what you don't know, just because there's a difference, a lot of times people gravitate, well, the empirical, my physical test must be correct. Well, in truth, you don't know because oftentimes many types of tests can be actually improperly set up and the results can be poor. So you might actually find that the, by comparing it to your analysis, oh, wow, hmm, you check your boundary conditions of your physical test, find, oh, maybe it's the physical test is wrong or no. It's maybe the material properties or the boundary conditions. My FEA model were inaccurate. So the the idea is to try and to have both, so that you can get confidence that you haven't missed something big, so to speak. That's a really interesting way to think about it. I I always thought of FEA as kind of like a, a first pass. Maybe you try that just to make sure you're in the ballpark, and then you do physical testing. I hadn't thought about it from the standpoint of the FEA could actually be a check against the, uh, the, the the physical testing to tell you maybe your physical testing isn't right. That's a really interesting point. Um, can you talk a little bit about the differences between linear and non-linear FEA and, and, and when to use each? Oh, yeah. Well, so a lot of simple models are in the linear region of an analysis. So let's say you're doing bending of a cantilever beam and you put a load on the end of the beam and on the other side of the beam, it's fixed. If you put the load on the end of the beam and it deflects, let's say, a tenth of an inch from the load is applied, you remove the load and the load comes all the way back. That's an example where you did not take the material beyond, I'll say, a linear condition. So for metals, let's say, the linear elastic point would be the yield point. So for a stainless steel, it might yield, let's say, if it's not very well heat treated, maybe 36,000 PSI. Beyond that, you might need a nonlinear material model to capture, I'll say, the material beyond, I'll say, the, the point of yield, which is, I'll say, in the plasticity region of the material. And those are more complex material models, which we do all the time. But you need to recognize that anytime your stresses in your model are beyond, I'll say, the yield point, uh, you're, if your material properties are only in the linear region, you're no longer necessarily predicting, I'll say, things accurately. You might have a small margin of error. You might have a large margin of error. Now, that's simply nonlinearity in the area of material properties. You can also have contact between components. So if you have ball bearings, you know, rolling on a race, so to speak, um, contact is highly nonlinear with regard to solving that model to solve and getting a good convergence. So you can have material nonlinearity. You can have really a geometric nonlinearity. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's any other big sources of nonlinear. I think there, there's other sources of nonlinear where there's just a couple of common examples. So if you're doing a, um, an analysis on a metal material, it's pretty clear where that uh, linear range is. If you look at like a force versus displacement curve or stress-strain curve, um, if you're looking at a plastic material, that, that linear range is a little bit less clearly defined. Are plastics another area where nonlinear analyses are performed? Oh, yes. And plastics can be highly nonlinear. I mean, kind of by definition, 
uh, when we say the, the straight part of that, you know, the Young's module, so to speak, we talk about, it's somewhat straight in a plastic, but very quickly or fairly early on, it starts to get curvature to it. So often in a plastic, if you're doing an elastic plastic model, which is what we call a bilinear material model, it's basically using two lines to try and simulate that material. That's relatively simplistic, oftentimes good enough to capture a certain amount of, I'll say, fidelity in the model. If you need more accuracy, um, having, I'll say, a damage model where if your plastic strain goes beyond a certain level, well, certainly those models become more sophisticated to capture uh, higher levels of strain and to properly capture, I'll say, your hysteresis loop, where if you pull the material so far and it comes back in a certain way when the load's released. So, yeah, plastics are, are, can have very sophisticated, I'll say, uh, properties when interacting with other objects. How much experience or material science knowledge uh, or just material properties knowledge does one need to have to run FEA effectively? Is this something that if you're really focused on it, you could pick up in you know a, a few months or is it really years before you're, you're, you're really very competent with it? Well, I'd say what's really cool about the time we live in is a lot of the most simplistic analyses people start out with are single component analysis. And they're just trying to understand, you know, is my wall thickness, you know, thick enough? Is the, is the part just going to be strong enough? Am I beyond yield? They're trying to ask basic questions with a basic answer. So the, I'll say some material packaging, you know, FEA packages have default materials already kind of loaded, but they're simplistic material models, often just linear material models, and they don't capture, I'll say, nonlinear behavior such as plasticity. So if you're doing that cantilever beam and you find you load it up, you find, oh, my stresses are below the yield point. Hey, this model is great. It's perfect. I can make my decisions. I move on. If you start to see that your stresses are much beyond, I'll say that the yield point, like, well, I might need to invest in a nonlinear material model. Uh, but with regard to picking it up, I'd say even the CAD tools we have today, which have a, you know, embedded FEA, like, you know, our pro engineer SOLIDWORKS, I think almost have some sort of embedded FEA at this point. The, the tools are very simple to use. And I think people can make reasonable, I'll say, uh, without much, I'll say, guidance, make reasonable material, I'll say, boundary conditions and settings, which allow them to make good decisions. But in general, though, when anyone's, I'll say, learning, uh, I'll say, a tool like this, there's an old phrase, right, in engineering, garbage in equals garbage out. And if you have, I'll say, poor boundary conditions are the most notorious way to have bad FEA results. If you artificially constrain something, which is called rigidizing it, and if you put too large of an area, you say, this is just fixed, it's not movable. What you've just done is you've made it infinitely rigid. And so when you put your load on it, you're find your stresses are, on, are very low, but that was an artifact of your boundary conditions. So it's always good when learning a new tool like this to have, I'll say, someone who's more senior look over your results to kind of give you some tutoring as far as, hey, you know, this boundary condition probably needs to be adjusted to be more realistic so that you're not having non-conservative results. Often we talk about having results which are more on the conservative side, like over-predicting stress versus under-predicting. That makes sense. That, that does make sense. Um, can you think of an example that you can share where you and your team used FEA as part of the product development process and it, you know, it was, it was really helpful. It, you look back and think to yourself, oh, thank goodness we did that. You know, it saved a lot of time or a lot of money, anything like that. Well, there's, I would say for us, that's all the time. Um, FEA is a kind of a necessity term trying to avoid, I'll say, do loops, especially in the medical device world, where often if you're putting devices down a five millimeter, you know, trocar, well, that means you have very small parts 
with very high loads, you're usually stressing the parts really high. Uh, so we're really trying to, we're really pushing the materials kind of to their maximum, so to mm. speak. So oftentimes we'll have to do things such as this. If we have uh, five components in an assembly, and if I have a, imagine if you will, a pair of pliers, you know, pliers, pliers eventually kind of come down to roughly a parallel gap towards the end if you're squeezing something. Now imagine if you want that gap to be the width of one human hair, and it's a one inch long gap. Well, if you have four components which make up your pliers and you're trying to achieve that uniform gap, let's say between two and four thousandths of an inch, you know, across that, uh, that range, what we had to do in order to, I'll say, design that is doing what we call a virtual design of experiments where we'll do several, I'll say, test cases, let's say 16 unique F FEA models where we will have the device in various configurations and the components in various sizes and dimensions to try and understand what particular attributes of the design are driving the effect to get a uniform draw gap. And from that, I'll say, analysis, we can develop a transfer function and eventually help us, I'll say, finalize the design and put tolerances on the key dimensions which control the final output of the design of the manufacturing process. That makes sense. Interesting. Yeah. Are, are there times where we shouldn't be using FEA, you know, use cases in which it's just not appropriate to use FEA? Um, so as a pragmatist, you know, I try and do whatever makes the most sense for a given case. In other words, you try not to do throw FEA everything per se. Uh, there's oftentimes people want to use FEA for something where the physics just really hasn't been developed yet. Uh, that technology is not there yet. Um, I'm trying to think of just an example here for a moment. Um, RF maybe? Uh, yeah. Let's say, let's say the physics involved with just sealing a vessel within a medical device. There's, uh, there's a lot of physics going on. You have electricity flow, you have joule heating, you have mechanical bending, you have the phase change going on with a vessel as it's sealed to the heating process. Um, that is obviously to do all that numerically, which would be wonderful. It's a great aspirational goal. I don't know of any, I'll say company, which is also cracked that nut just yet. So sometimes you're left with doing things empirically because this, the technology is not there. You can kind of, you can do pieces of it, parts of it, uh, numerically, but not the whole thing. Uh, similarly, sometimes it's just, if you have a bunch of parts sitting over on the bench and you have a, a load frame where you can just go walk over and pull test them versus I'll say developing a real sophisticated FEA model, which might take you, you know, if it's really sophisticated, you know, several days to develop and maybe a couple days to run, it might be quicker to test. So you kind of do whatever, whatever gives you the reasonable information, the quickest, so to speak, that you could trust to make your decision. Yeah. Great advice. How about for, uh, for those of us who are just getting started with FEA, we're, you know, we're, we're very, uh, junior, um, we're, we're still learning what the tool is and how to use it. Are, are there any areas that you can recommend we really watch out for? You know, what are the gotchas that can really get you into trouble if, if you, if you don't even know enough to be aware to watch out for those areas? Well, in FEA, I guess the two biggest ones are your boundary conditions and the loads and how you apply them. So one of the, the first mistakes people make is they'll, if they, if you have a pot, let's say if you have a part, a flower pot sitting on top of the tabletop desk and the flower pot has, uh, you know, it's full of dirt, so to speak on the inside or fill, let's make it full of water, make it a little easier because the water applies a, a pressure on the inside of the flower pot. 
Of course, that flower pot is sitting, being supported by the table, and it, someone might initially say, you know what I'm going to do with the bottom of that flower pot? I'm going to fix that. I'll make that a rigid boundary condition. And what one has just done is by fixing it, make it immovable, we also made it infinitely rigid. So zero stress can develop in any no nodes, any elements that are linked to that boundary condition. So now the stresses will be artificially low, and it may lead you to conclude that your design is strong enough when it's really not. Uh, the next thing would be how you apply your loads in the model. Um, sometimes my, people might be tempted to do a point load, like all the force, in particular, like a single dot, a node, what is what we call that, versus, or may put it on a line edge. And what those kind of inputs will do is they'll artificially drive the stresses up too high, which they could lead one to conclude that, you know, there might be an issue with the design where really it's just how the, the loads are applied and, and those concentrated stresses just make your stresses look high or higher than what they really are in reality. So I think just being careful with your boundary conditions and how you apply your loads. This, this really gets down into the weeds and I don't know how effectively we'll be able to discuss it just uh, using verbal communication or, or oral. Um, but let's say that you have a device, a, a medical device, a, a handle, and you want to understand how hard can uh, a person squeeze on this handle before it, it, uh, it breaks or exceeds the yield point, plastically deforms. Um, an easy way to apply a load to a handle like that would just be to... Um, uh, isolate a, a, a defined surface. Maybe it's a kind of a, like a oval shaped surface on the, the face of this, uh, handle and, and apply your load across that surface. So you, you have a load applied distributed even, evenly across this oval. You can see the oval represents a person's thumb or something like that. But, but even when you do that, uh, the load, is at its at its at its uh, fully distributed maximum value up to the edge of where you have defined that oval to stop, and then you know a, a thousandth of an inch beyond the surface defined by that oval, there's no load, which is not really how things work, right? If someone's thumb is pressed up against uh, a, a material, there, there's going to be a gradual um, uh, reduction of, of load, uh, as, as you move away from the surface under that thumb. Is, is there a way to accommodate for things like that? Or is that just a, a limitation right now of FEA? Well, there certainly is a way. I mean, if one was really concerned about the stresses directly beneath the finger and the squishiness of our flesh, so to speak, certainly you could develop a, an assembly model where you have contact and you have, I'll say an appropriate squishy, you know, material representing the flesh or muscle of one's finger. Got pushing it. on that. that. That could be done at that level of fidelity. Uh, we do those types of exact scenarios you describe all the time with regard to concerning about, I'll say, the physical force that someone can exert on the handle and breaking it. And oftentimes, the peak stresses are not right below where someone's applying the load. The peak stresses are often in bending, right? And so bending is usually a distance away from where the load is actually applied. Mm. So it's often not very crucial to, I'll say, model on that fidelity right underneath the, where the load's applied. So just making sure that you've got the right force at the right location, getting the right, the right moment, I'll say, the bending stresses uh, somewhere else in the part, which is usually the bigger concern. So if you would have, it, I'll say, a point load or a line load or having contact to a, a rigid cylinder just at the right distance, you would get good results in the area that you care about. That makes a lot of sense. Great way of explaining it. Uh, 
All right, I'm going to take a very short break here and share with the listeners that TeamPipeline.us is where you can learn more about how we help medical device and other product engineering or manufacturing teams develop turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines to characterize, inspect, assemble, manufacture, and perform verification testing on your devices. We're speaking with Greg Trees today. Greg, um, uh, you you worked at a company called Battelle, which we've actually had other people from Battelle on this show several times in the past, actually. Anyway, um, at Battelle, you developed IP in the area of electrohydrodynamics, or EHD. Can you share a little bit? Uh, this is not an area that I'm familiar with, so I'm guessing there are a lot of engineers out there who are not very familiar with this area. What is EHD? And can you share a, a brief uh, example, an, an application of how it's used? Sure. So there's a lot of different, you know, types of, I'll say, lesser heard of types of physics, and EHD, electrohydrodynamics, is one of them. That's basically if you have a, I'll say, a flat plate, a ground plate, your table that you're sitting at right now is ground, and if you held your pen, your ink pen, above that table a couple inches, if you had the pen, I'll say, at a voltage of 10,000 volts, and your ground plate is at, you know, basically zero, zero volts ground, if you have the right fluid properties, the right voltage potential, you can get that fluid to atomize into an aerosol. So instead of your fluid ink having to, I'll say, write it on the, the pen on paper, so to speak, you can turn your pen into, I'll say, a sprayer, so to speak. So that, that fluid will form what's called a Taylor cone, and at the, ta- the tip of that little cone of fluid is a very high electric field source. And that the high, the charge, charge density and the gradient overwhelms the surface tension of the fluid and causes it to burst into an aerosol. And that aerosol is charged as a very high, uh, basically amount of charge per unit volume on it. So then the particles rapidly repel from each other. So it becomes one of the interesting properties of the HD process fits, I'll say tuned properly is it's like a mono dispersed aerosol, meaning the distribution of the, the particles coming from that process are very small in their size. So, you were targeting at the time for uh, drug delivery in the lungs to have particles between, I don't know, it might be 2 and 10 microns, something of that nature. And this process can develop a very fine you know, distribution of particles. But what's also interesting, at least in electrohydrodynamics, initially that aerosol is charged, so all the particles are rapidly, I'll say, repelling each other. And, of course, if they get near a source like a, your body or paper or a metal plate, they want to plate it. Versus if you get in the lungs, you then need to discharge the particles. So we also had to combine that with a methodology to fire a bunch of ionized air at it, all those little particles, to neutralize their charge so they could be, I'll say, inhaled into the lung and get, get very good, I'll say, drug you know, deposition down there. Things. Interesting. That, that makes me think, I live here in Arizona where it's super hot. I wonder if there's an application for that in um, misting systems. Oh, yeah. Might be maybe too expensive of a process for that, but I'm sure could get some small particles. I think the, the diameter of the water is, is, uh, uh, directly related to the, the, the cooling effect it has. That would be interesting. Yeah. Anyway. It, it, it would evaporate very quickly, uh, so to speak. And I'll say you, you would cool down the air versus you wouldn't have to worry about getting it sprayed all over you and getting sweaty. That's the cool thing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's see. What um, What is one of the most challenging product development projects that you've worked on in your career? And, and, and what were one or two key takeaways from that project? 
Well, I say developing vessel sealers is extremely challenging that we do right now. Um, obviously, finding a method to deliver energy in a very precise manner uh, to understand the tissue properties and all of the variables, I'll say within the device, control those within very tight parameters to get a very repeatable outcome across a variety of tissues is extremely challenging. So basically, uh, one thing Ethicon makes is a bunch of vessel sealers, uh, so to speak, and, and cutting devices. So that is an extremely challenging technology. Um, and one of the challenging things about it is, since you cannot, I'll say, at least presently, fully develop a, a numerical model, a computer model to help you do this, that means you're doing a lot of empirical work. So that just puts an extra, um, I'll say, strain or diligence on the quality of that work to make sure it's thorough. It just means, it just means it's a lot of work you've got to do on the empirical side. Sure, yeah. Huh. I'm curious, what would, what would the Greg of today say to the Greg of 30 years ago, back when you were just starting out as an engineer that you wish you had known back then? Um, I definitely got some, some points there. So I think for engineers starting out, I think focusing on your technical for the first time, five to 10 years of your career is a very wise thing to do. Making sure you're just growing a lot of areas as much as you can. Try not to get, if you're interested in being, I'll say an engineer doing technical things, make sure you're taking, looking for opportunities to really just develop your technical. Um, after that, I would say learning structured solving problem techniques. Oftentimes when we come out of the college, we know areas of physics and mathematics and science, but we haven't been really taught sound methodologies for solving problems, such as Six Sigma methodologies, such as Demaic and Demadvi. Um, learning about those methodologies can really help you solve problems more efficiently um, and, and, and correctly versus thinking you've solved it, but really you haven't, which is hmm. sometimes having to do that. Uh, the other thing I'll say is learning the value of risk management tools and system engineering tools as you select your concepts and as well as you refine your designs. Um, you, I think design engineers or engineers in general don't recognize that really a lot of their engineering careers are about managing risk and trying to avoid things from going wrong. So really a large part of our lives is risk management. We're really risk managers, risk managers of a sort, but we just don't realize it. So you're trying to keep something from failing for working. And the antithesis of that is it not working. So you're trying to constantly balance risk, uh, so to speak. And lastly, I'd say, uh, be a jack of all trades and a master of one. Uh, some people have used the old saying, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. But I encourage people, you, you want to really go after something and go after it deeply. Because what will happen is after you become a master of something, you'll eventually be able to augment or bolt on other things to it. So, for example, you know, many years ago, I started going deep into FEA which then pulled me into knowledge of materials, which then pulled me into knowledge of crazing and other failure modes for material properties. And so it allows you to build out a platform if you go deep on something. So mass wall trades, Jack of all, or sorry, mass, no, you got it. <laughs> I got it. You've, you've mentored, um, I think quite a few engineers in, in, in your time. And I was wondering what are some of the topics that you commonly hit on? And it, it might be similar to some of the things you just shared about, you know, what does Greg today share with Greg 30 years ago, but in, in your mentoring sessions, what are some, some topics that come up commonly? Well, I think we definitely talked about the technical, making sure people are, 
doing structured problem solving, making sure they're um, managing the risk. We definitely talk about the balance between going fast and going thorough. There's a little saying we sometimes throw around. So sometimes going slower is going faster. Yeah. Um, because sometimes, you know, we think we're moving fast, but we could be heading for a cliff, so to speak, you know, basically a null solution. And then you really haven't moved quickly. You just spent a lot of time in dollars and didn't really make full progress and get to the objective. Um, I think then the common things that people also are working about are statistics these days. I remember, let's say, you know, 25 years ago, of course, statistics was important to engineering. Also, much more so now, um, hmm. being understanding uh, your design as far as if you're making a lot of something, you know, hundreds of thousands of something. But now what starts mattering is, okay, how good is it? For example, on a transistor or a microprocessor, you have billions of transistors, right? So if you have one out of a million transistors is not functioning, that's a large number of transistors that aren't functioning on that chip. So they are obviously used to that kind of methodology and how to deal with, I'll say, the non-functioning transistors on a chip. If you're developing, a, that's just on one product, you have a, a billions of something. We typically, I'll say, you know, if you think about cars, you know, Ford makes 600,000, you know, F-150s a year. Uh, so that's, you know, if only one out of 600,000 had an issue, well, that's, you know, two out of a million, roughly. So we're constantly trying to do with your testing, what is the... Um, reliability or the capability of your design with regard to per million units, so to speak, versus just showing that you can make one work. You really need to demonstrate that you need to make you know, millions work, so to speak. Yeah. Can you share um, maybe one or two of your favorite vendors? I'm talking about people like uh, or organizations like McMaster Car or, uh, I don't know, maybe there's some kind of like 3D printing service bureau that, that you really like. Um, uh organizations like that or, or vendors like that, that listeners might find useful in their, their own projects. Oh yeah. Well, certainly McMaster cars and probably in every engineer's toolbox per se. I think for prototyping, what's really interesting was come on the scene in the last several years, obviously proto labs, um, initially, you know, having prototypes made was a lot of smaller machine shops, but how they automated the process of getting parts and a fairly number of decent quantity and the, the quality it's just kind of interesting what ProLabs have done for people as far as 3D printing and prototyping and uh, just how they've, I'll say, commoditized the ability to get prototypes quickly. That's uh, so another really interesting thing as far as that's kind of come about, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, we use them um, regularly, if not often. What are a few habits that you've developed that have proven useful to you? It could be engineering-related or personal. Yeah, let me think about here. Um I'd say continuous learning has really helped. You know, they say engineers from the time they graduate to over the course of their career, they'll need to kind of relearn their craft, you know, two or three times. So it's definitely good to try and stay abreast of what's going on because things are obviously constantly changing. So we talked about FEA today. You know, when I graduated from school, of course, FEA was available when I was in college and I uh, looked into that. But now I say the water level is continuously rising, so to speak, the capabilities of, you know, are just constantly uh, being increased. So in other words, FEA, I think is now for this, if you're a mechanical engineer, is you've it's kind of like table stakes. You should be able to know how to do this. It's kind of like a Swiss army knife. You need to have that in your bag, so to speak. The question is, you know, to what level do you want to, I'll say, take that in your own skills? Uh, we talked a little bit about structured problem solving. Um, some of the habits I'll say just hobbies. I'll say my, in general, like I enjoy working on cars and, 
Partly it's just because I have an old fleet, so to speak, I have to take care of, you know, they're not all brand new cars at the, at the trees household, so to speak. So that gives me a chance to work on troubleshooting things and seeing things I'll say that other people have designed and, and where they failed and uh, just practice troubleshooting skills. So um, being, a, I think, a good design engineer means you, of course, need to eventually know a lot of processes. Uh, I think it helps to familiarize yourself with um, you know, stamping, protection molding, you know, casting it. And the more things you know in that regard, the more it helps you see other ways of doing things, right? Just the broader your horizons get. So I just continuously learning and about all these things just really helps you do better at I'll say engineering in general. What's one of the best parts of your job and, and also one of the mm, uh, least enjoyable parts of your job? Oh, uh, of course, you know, in the product development continuum, right, you kind of start off with, I'll say, the fuzzy front end where you have an idea and a concept. For me, that's kind of the fun part where it's like, okay, you're really just trying to sculpt, you know, what are the customers' unmet needs? Or what are the potential solutions? Start identifying uh, concepts to meet those solutions. And that's the, also to me, the, the real fun part where it's, it's like fast and fluid. And then after you kind of narrow things down to your final concept and you've got your, say, your project charter, you can make a business commitments when you're going to deliver this to the business. Now things get a little more rigid and locked down. There's still fun in there, but I'll say that's when also the paperwork, at least in the medical device industry, starts to increase quite a bit. So you'll be doing engineering builds, a lot of design verification testing, lots of documents circulating for review. And so you're kind of looping through this process multiple times as you get to the end. So for me, of course, um, I'm not too, I don't know too many people who really get engineers that get jazzed up over doing a lot of documentation. <laughs> Although it is extremely valuable in the medical device space. It has a real sincere, honest, good purpose. I wouldn't just call it the fun part of engineering, but it's a, it's a very necessary part of it. You know, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's always a little disheartening. Um, not necessarily to me because I've seen it so many times, but I, I've heard this sentiment from our customers who themselves are not engineers where we'll, we'll start on a project and it's that beginning, like you talked about, right? The kind of fast fluid part where you're, you're architecting something. You haven't really worked out the de details yet, but you're architecting something. And in a surprisingly short amount of time, you can come up with a design that looks pretty good, you know? Uh, someone who's not an engineer might look at it and say, oh, we're, we're 80% done and we've only spent 20% of the budget. We're, we're in good shape here. Uh, and then it, 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 it can be a little awkward when, um, uh, you know, we're, we're down the road a, a few months later and the customer's like, I, I, I saw, you know, uh, months ago that we were almost, you know, 80% done and here we are and we're, we're still working on this. Well, the reality is that, um, uh, 80% of the perceived work gets done in that first 20% of the time. But really, uh, the, the last 80% of the time spent is, is where all the, you know, the details get ironed out. And that can be hard for someone who's not an engineer themselves to, to understand. Oh, very true. Especially the quality, quality of prototypes these days, they look so good. Let's say upper management or some of the marketing sees it. Wow. It looks like you're done. What do you mean? It's going to take you two more years to get this done. <laughs> I can sell it right now. Oh yeah. <laughs> It's, it just doesn't have the I's dotted, the T's crossed, and all those other things which go along with it. Yeah. You might be selling some lawsuits at the same time if you <laughs> release this right now. All right. Well, let's see. I've just got one one more question for you. What is, this is a pretty open-ended question. Feel free to take this in whatever direction you think would be most useful to people listening. What is one of the greatest things that you have ever learned? Well, 
I, I will say, you know, try, I won't delve deeply into this, but, but I enjoy the topic of theology, and that's, uh, that is a, a great thing which gives me peace and rest in my life. But uh, I, I won't go further on that uh, area because it's probably not the place to do it. But I think from a, uh, from a team and engineering theme standpoint, what I'll say is over the course of many years and many projects, when you're faced with these challenges, which sometimes seem, sometimes they might be, unsurmountable, but the vast majority of times they're not. And one of the little phrases that one of the old bosses used to say was just keep working the problem. And so what I found is when you have a dedicated high performing team with, I'll say the right people on the bus, you know, and the right seats in the bus, you can bring home very challenging problems and you it's that confidence that people get after I'll say living through a lot of very difficult times with regard to just facing tough challenges where, you know, the team maybe has a setback, things didn't go right. And you continue to keep your nose to that grindstone and the team stays positive and you get to the other side and you finally, when you have enough of those experiences and you're like, you know what? I, quote, unquote, I'll just use the old, this isn't rocket science, so to speak. But, um, obviously, because that's just also a different level of aerospace is a much more challenging level of engineering because all the more requirements that you're leveraging that kind of work. Um, but obviously those people get it done. I and mean, look, we have aerospace, we have airplanes, we have rockets, so to speak. So most problems I'll say can be solved unless someone's asking something, which is just not within normal physics or within a budget. So my, I guess my advice to folks would be, you know, if you've got the right people or if you don't think you have the right talent to solve from find the right talent because the problem more likely is solvable. That is fantastic. That's so encouraging and motivating. Um, we're working on a pretty tough problem right now. So hearing words of wisdom like that, uh, to me personally, that's, uh, that's very helpful. And I'm sure that there are a lot of other people out there listening for whom that is just as helpful. Well, Greg, thank you so much. Um, I really, really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with me and, and share some of your wisdom and insights. Um, uh, is there anything else that, that we haven't talked about that you think we should talk about? One thing I will say, too, is just that failure, you know, um, often we try and avoid failure in our careers as much as possible in our lives, but it's kind of inevitable in the engineering world that you will experience setbacks and failures. And I, and I have had, I'll say, you know, experienced some of those and they are rough at the time and it's not, I'll say fun to go through those experiences, but you will learn from those experiences and those will obviously help you teach others about where those pitfalls and roadblocks are. Um, I think those, some of those lessons, which are hard learned, um, I think it's a matter of not how you fall down, but it's how you get back up from those experiences, even at, not as just as an individual, but as a team. So just remember, usually you're in it with the team. And I think it's how you lead and your, how your, the team handles that scenario will determine well, how they eventually, uh, that, that effort pans out, how they approach it to let it knock them down and how they get up from that. Amen. Amen. Oh, and I wanted to touch on your comment about theology very briefly. Um, it's, it's super interesting for me to hear people talk about it because I, I myself am a, a man of faith and, uh, I have never tried to facilitate that kind of conversation here on the podcast, but it comes up fairly regularly. You know, people just start talking about it and it, it's just interesting to me. Um, 
uh, how organically that, that comes up. And anyway, uh, I think it's neat. So thank you for, for sharing that, um, that, uh, that perspective as well. Thanks, sir. Well, um, how can, how can people get in touch with you, Greg? Well, I think uh, LinkedIn probably be one of the easiest ways to get in touch with me, excuse me, that's out there. Excellent. Okay. Well, again, thank you so much. This has been uh, just fantastic. And I can't wait for for, uh, all of the listeners to hear everything that we talked about today. Thank you, Greg. All right. Thanks, Aaron. Have a great day. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please share the episode. To learn how your team can leverage our team's expertise developing turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines, and with product design, visit us at teampipeline.us. Thanks for listening.